0: Life Audio. Hello, and welcome to Kainos Project. I'm Dale. And I am Tamara.
1: And we're here to help you tackle ancient truths and everyday settings. Well, when it comes to Christianity, it's safe to say that we are a theologically diverse group, right? Like even within evangelicals, within Protestants, and then when you look at even more widely to, say, Roman Catholics or Eastern Orthodox, we are a diverse group. And we're so diverse, in fact, that some of those distinctions are so firm that people on either side of the equation may even doubt that the Christians on the other side of that equation are even Christian. Have you seen this much in your your travels? Indeed. <laughs> For example, I grew up with a lot of like anti-Catholic rhetoric that really painted Catholics as essentially non-Christian and in needing of, you know, in need of being converted to, to faith. Um, Was that your experience growing up as well in kind of evangelical churches? Um,
0: Not so much in my churches. A lot of people in my churches actually came out of uh, Catholicism, but um, I think it was just, it was just painted differently.
1: Yeah, for but for me it was like we need to convert the Catholics because they're not even saved. Like that's yeah, that the rhetoric I got growing that up. That
0: wasn't the uh sentiment towards Catholics. I think it was there was a lot of um that language of um People saying like, "Oh, what I missed was this personal relationship with Jesus." Okay, like but that they could have
1: missed that in an evangelical church yes, as well. Okay, exactly, that makes sense. But this is like a historic thing. Like during the Reformation, uh, Protestants were considered by the Catholic Church to be heretic, and a lot of them had violence done against them. They had to flee. Some of them were killed. And even after the Reformation, some Protestants thought that other Protestants were heretics enough, which also resulted in physical violence. For example, uh, some Protestants and Catholics, this is you know, first team up after the split, uh, persecuted the Anabaptists, you know, even torturing them and drowning them. And they would drown them kind of as a sick joke because they were Credo Baptists. They didn't believe in infant baptism. They believed in believers' baptism, and so they said, "You believe in believers' baptism so much, we're going to drown you." Funny, ha ha. And in fact, much of America's oh, that's, founding—that's bad. Yeah, it's real bad. I
0: feel like you said it so quickly, like you—you you went through the joke so fast. Yeah, but you, once it's, you let it sit, like it becomes pretty, more dark.
1: It's pretty dark, yeah. Um, but even beyond that particular violent episode, Uh, much of America's founding is actually owing to Protestants who are trying to escape marginalization and persecution by other Protestants. And so there's a lot that has been disagreed on with a certain level of vehemence. But did you know that there is one particular statement of faith that essentially every one of our Christian traditions has co-signed? Like whether you're Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, or one of the thousands of flavors of Protestant, there is one document, probably exactly one document, that we all agree on.
0: I did know this. And can I share what it is? Or sure. do you want to be the revealer of news?
1: You can reveal it. Okay.
0: This is called the Apostles' Creed.
1: And that is what we want to talk about today. But we will dive into that in just a moment. So if you grew up in kind of low-church, Baptistic, or Pentecostal environments, you might not have known much about the Apostles' Creed or had it regularly read in your church.
0: So when you say low-church, because I was often told I came from low-church, and I, I found that rather you offensive. You said, how dare you? I was like, how I dare am not you? low. I am very high in my faith. <laughs> uh, low church I have a strong means strong faith. So a, maybe just low uh, yeah, church authority it. structures.
1: Yes. Whereas, if you're like Anglican or Presbyterian, there's kind of a, a high uh, church authority from the top down with bishops and hierarchies and things like that. So
0: that just refers to the structure, kind of the governmental structure that's happening within that denomination and within that church.
1: Right. Like in a, in a baptistic setting, the authority is at the lowest point, which is the congregation. congregation. And you know, it, there's a continuum of things like that. But if you grew up in more of a high church environment, this is typically where you would see uh, this creedal statement read uh, in a worship service. But what's crazy about it is that, like, the Presbyterians and the Anglicans and, you know, some some non-denominational folks that are reading this creed in their worship services are reading the exact same creed that Catholic churches and Eastern Orthodox churches, apart from one word. We don't have time to get into the filioque today. That's another podcast for another day. But essentially the same statement in all of these churches is uniting their faith and they're reciting these things and they hold to them. And even though Baptists and Pentecostals don't recite these, they their our faith is still within the boundaries of this creed. And so it is like the oldest and most enduring doctrinal statement for the global Christian church that has ever or probably will ever exist.
0: When you put it that way, I'm, Slightly excited about the Apostles' Creed. I know when I was reading it in like seminary because I didn't even know about this until seminary. Because I did, as you say, came from low church. Um,
1: and you said, "How dare you, sir? How dare you? How dare you?" Rude.
0: <laughs> uh, but it, I, I just didn't even know about creeds of any kind. Like I didn't know any of this. Did you know about stuff? the band Creed? Yes.
1: Unfortunately, right? Yeah. That's the only creed you knew about?
0: I did. (laughs) That's the
1: worst of all the creeds.
0: You say unfortunately, but low-key, and I'm shamefully admitting it, I liked them as a teenager. I really...
1: Probably because you came from a low church, you know?
0: (laughs) It's probably because I'm low. Thank you. Uh, But I didn't even know about the Apostles' Creed until college, and yet... In my churches, we were definitely teaching and affirming and supporting, and it was very fundamental to what we believed. I just didn't know it came from this.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah. So I'll read the creed, and it might sound familiar to most people, even if it's not something that you regularly recite or even knew really existed. Uh, It reads, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and buried, descended into hell, on the third day rose again from the dead, ascended to heaven, sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, Thence will come to judge the living and the dead, I believe in the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Catholic Church, and the word Catholic there just means universal church, the communion of the saints, the remission of sins, and the resurrection of the flesh, and eternal life, Amen. So this version of the creed wasn't... Yeah, thank you. (laughs) Sound like one of our boys. Amen. Amen. Uh, This version of the creed wasn't uh, completely codified in this real exact wording until probably the 6th or maybe the 7th century. Um, But a version of it was first codified by an ecumenical council in the 3rd century. And even then, they drew on language of pre-existing informal creeds that were kind of in circulation, even a century before that. So we're talking about the second century. From the second century on, we have at least the shape of this language that would go on to be uh, refined and expanded into what we now have as the Apostles' Creed.
0: And you might be more familiar with it from Hillsong's version of
1: or the, Newsboys. the
0: Creed. The Newsboys did it too.
1: They, yeah, it was right, like right around the same year too. Oh, really? Yeah, they okay. both had yeah uh, worship songs that kind of mirrored the. I didn't the know creed. that,
0: but when Hillsong released their song, and it was something we were singing in church, there was just this sense of like, oh wow, so many people are becoming more aware of the Apostles' Creed now. Um, just because. Well, I mean,
1: were they though? They were just like, wow, Hillsong is like really writing some good lyrics. Like, yeah, I didn't know.
0: their theology is on point <laughs> for once. <laughs> they're just like they're just <laughs> copying down
1: word for word the creed. And putting it is, melody. but it's, it's so
0: rich and yeah. it's so like. Even as you sing that song, it it feels like you're coming together in this community and stating like, this is who we are as Christians and this is what it is that we believe that is fundamental to who we are in our declaration of what we believe about God, the Trinity. And yeah, so I was excited when that song came out. Right. So anyways. It's a good song.
2: Thank you.
1: Uh, so today I thought it would be fun to take a look at how we got this creed. It was a bit of a process and um I wanted to look at that process and really at like a thirty five thousand foot view. Right. Each of the councils that we'll we'll look at that kind of refine the creed, we could do a whole hour conversation or more. Just on, on those. one of the councils. Yeah. Santa right. Claus is involved at one point. Like it's it's a whole thing. Um but really this creed, it, the way it arose is that the church had these occasions where it kept needing to refine its language in response to strange ideas that you know some theologians were putting forth at various points in history and really threatened to alter the Christian faith and Christian doctrine in such a way that it wouldn't be Christian anymore. It would be something else. It would turn into this new thing. And so with each kind of weird new thing that came up throughout the centuries— uh, the creed got expanded and reworked until eventually we, the what we just read is kind of a, a shortened kind of summary version that's now recited in churches all the time, even to this day. Uh, so I wanted to take a look at those events, which were uh, councils that assembled basically all the leadership of the entire church at that point at that
0: time right which
1: is pretty cool and it's like a few hundred bishops but like that you know nonetheless like we're all here we're all represented in the room and the first one was the council of nicaea in ad 325 and so the council of nicaea i meant in the city of nicaea that's why they called the council of nicaea um and it was assembled in response to a heresy that was being circulated by a dude named arius And his followers were called Arians, which is different than another Arian you may have heard of. Um, But nonetheless, in this story, they are also the bad guy, although it can be argued probably not as bad. Um, So Arius, he set forth this theory that Jesus, though he was like a divine character, he was not co-eternal with God. Um, but he was like a created being. He was God the Father's first and best creation. And it, G- he created Jesus before the world and all that. But he was a created being nonetheless. And then he created the world through Jesus. But essentially, Jesus wasn't an eternal being with God. He was a separate thing that God created first. And then he created everything else. And they saved the world through this first thing that he created. And so that was Arius's... View. And so this council set out to correct this and codify language that indicated that Jesus existed in eternity past. And while he was eternally begotten by God the Father as his son in the role of son, he was not created, that he rather existed eternally and was equal with God the Father.
0: You just said a lot of things that are always very difficult to process. And that's because you're talking about the Trinity, which is very difficult to process. But this idea that Jesus um, was not like separately created, but has always existed in the way that we understand God the Father to have always existed in this Trinity We have God, the Father, God, the Son, God, the Holy Spirit, who have always existed. And it wasn't God who created Jesus or who created the Holy Spirit, but they've all coexisted for all of eternity.
1: Right. And so that's the long and the short of the theological argument that happened at Nicaea. Um, And there's like a lot of... uh, political things happening, with Constantine just coming to power and declaring the Roman Empire to be a Christian empire now, um, there just the, the Aryan movement and the way it was affecting the church, but um, that's basically the, the distilled theological argument, and from that council we get this new language, well not new, it, it drew on previous creeds that had kind of been Uh, circulating, but this is the first official ecumenical creed. It says, we believe in one God, the father almighty maker of heaven and earth and of all things visible and invisible. And in one Lord Jesus Christ, the son of God, the only begotten, begotten of the father before the ages, light of light, true God of true God, begotten, not made of one essence with the father by whom all things were made and for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate of the Holy spirit. So you see how they've there's like a lot of explanatory words there Uh, and the, and the Virgin Mary and became a man. He was crucified for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And on the third day, he rose again, according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the father. And he shall come again with glory to judge the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And in the Holy spirit, (laughs) they <laughs> just threw it in the and also we believe in the Holy Spirit.
0: Also, don't forget about him.
1: Yeah, he's there. They later would say more about him. Right. But for now they just said yeah, yeah, he's he's there. We're tackling other questions right now. Because
0: we'll- that wasn't that wasn't the big concern that the big heretical concern they were trying to fight against at that moment.
1: Right. They but don't only, worry, it would come. They only created language about things that people had said wrong things about. Yes. Said, okay, let's, let's back up and create the official language yeah, from the let's Bible. let's set
0: the record straight and make sure everyone's on the same page because this heretic over here, truly a heretic, right? I mean, I know we like to use that word a lot today, but...
1: Right, with at whatever, this point like, in time, Preacher you just don't like.
0: Yeah, at this point in time, they're arius was a true heretic
1: right so in 325 this is essentially the template for what would become the creed that was drawing from other previous templates Um, and then the next council was about 50 years later in the city of constantinople but we'll dive into that one in just a moment what
2: impacts you every day there is one book that influences almost every aspect of our lives
1: So in 325, we had the Council of Nicaea, and we got the first ecumenical creed, this kind of clarifying language. And everybody in the church, all the church leadership agreed, yes, this is the proper language that we should be using. Then we have the Council of Constantinople in 381. And this time, in addition to kind of doubling down on the whole uh, Arianism debate, uh, they also responded to a different heresy. There's always a new heresy just around the corner, and this one was called Apollinarianism named after this dude named Apollinarius. Wow. And, yeah. <laughs> the naming conventions, you got to
0: They're really creative, you know. Yeah.
1: So Apollinarius, he argued that while Jesus had a human body, he had a divine mind and soul. So in other words, in essence, he wasn't fully human, but he was just kind of God in the bod. Like if you just put like a flesh suit on God. That's what Jesus was. And so he was, He had the appearance of man, but he wasn't fully man. He was just divinity in sort of a thin human casing. Right. So that was uh, Apollinarius's view. And at Constantinople, they kind of sussed out that, no, that's not right. Jesus did, in fact, have human emotions and a human mind. And he was human in every sense of what it means to be human, like to think like a human, to feel like a human, to be a human, to have the limitations of humanity, that Jesus, though fully divine, became fully human in every respect. And so they had to update the creed to reflect that uh, and kind of expanded it. And this is where they added some language that we heard in the The earlier, uh, you know, you know, final version of the Apostle's Creed that we have about the Holy Spirit, um, about the Church, um, about you know Jesus coming back, and all those kinds of things, and so that was Constantinople. Then there's the Councils of Ephesus in 431 and Chalcedon in 451, and I kind of am lumping them together here because um, conceptually it's a little bit difficult to. Explain them at a high level They kind of go together uh, because the the issues were kind of the same side of – or two sides of the same coin, rather. And so these two councils, uh, they first were responding to Nestorianism. And so Nestorius, he believed that Jesus had two natures, the divine and the human natures. But they were so completely separate, like you couldn't, you couldn't bind human nature to divine nature. As, you know, he wanted to preserve just the integrity of what it meant that Jesus had divine nature. He said that they were so distinct and only like kind of loosely held together in the body of Jesus Christ that it, it's almost as if Jesus had like two wills. There were kind of like two different seats of his existence, even in his one body. So you have that Nestorius on the one side of that. Then you have the Eutychians, and uh, Eutychius, uh, he believed that Jesus actually had one nature and one will, and there isn't much clarity about how this worked out, but his belief was basically that once Jesus incarnated, his human nature and his divine nature mixed together to create this third kind of different united thing, where there was just like this cocktail of humanity and divinity in this one nature because Jesus had one will. So you have on one side this one dude saying like, Jesus has two seats of his will in his divine nature and his human nature. And you have over here on the other side saying, no, those things mixed together and became a third different thing. And that's how you can explain the unity of Jesus being one person.
0: Right. And the council said, no
1: said both to y'all both of those go to your room like
0: we and and the reality is you continue to have this even within our own churches as we're trying to understand who jesus is how is it that he's fully god how is it that he's fully man like how did this actually look and we always get so many um I guess images painted of how this is and oftentimes we get it wrong
1: Right. Yeah. And what's interesting about this later um, council is that when you go back to Nicaea, um, you're you're really talking about things that ought like are super clear in terms of like, yes, Jesus is a person. God, the father is a person. The Holy Spirit is a person. Yet there's only one God. So it's three persons in one essence. And even though that's mysterious, you know, that needs to be clear here. Um, This where they kind of landed on it. Um, was to kind of just create some parameters where there's still room for disagreement in terms of our like modern contemplation of these things um but this um definition came from uh, Pope Leo, I, the Bishop of Rome, it was kind of before the Pope was the Pope as we understand him today, but it was still, there were kind of like two seats of power. There was the, the Bishop of Constantinople and the Bishop of Rome. These were kind of like the two major players in terms of the Eastern church and the Western church There's the one that speaks Latin. There's the one that speaks Greek, but they're kind of like the two big, uh, points of authority at the, in the church at this point. Um, and so Pope Leo, he says, here, let me give you this kind of carefully worded definition because within the Eastern Church, they couldn't even come to agreement on this. Mm-hmm. And so Pope Leo's like, all right, here, how about this? Here's basically essentially what he says. He says, Jesus has one will because he's one person, but he has two natures, the divine and the human. And those two natures are bound together in in what is called the hypostatic union. But those natures are still nevertheless distinct and don't mix with one another so he's one will one person two natures the two natures are connected to each other and yet they maintain internal integrity integrity and they remain distinct and he said basically that's about all we can say definitively
0: he really cleared that up didn't he
1: yeah, and then within that there's a lot of room for improvisation. Right. Like even when you look at Jesus and you see him do miracles, you think, well, what nature is he tapping into? By what power is he doing that? And there's some that say like he's doing that as a part of his divine authority as the son, and there's others that would say that he was doing that as a spirit-filled prophet and the spirit, the holy spirit, the spirit of the lord moved through him to perform those miracles. And it was actually through his humanity and the empowerment of the Holy spirit that that was happening rather than he's just pulling his God card and doing those things. So there's disagreement with that, even to this day, even among evangelicals. Um, but basically what Leo sets forth is called the Chalcedonian definition. It has remained kind of the gold standards in terms of like, here are the guardrails and how we have those conversations and you know, the borders within those things, but then leaves a lot of room for mystery because you know, it's, a mysterious type of thing,
0: and throughout the centuries, we've tried to use our own like human brains and and wrap our minds around it, which makes sense. Like, why wouldn't we try and do that? But there is a a large element that God is different than humans, right? So, how can we, the created, understand the Creator? And thankfully, He has given us information within scripture that we can look to, but it's not as satisfying, I think, for some people because they want to say, but how? But how did he do that? But how is that possible? Um, And we do have to leave some parts of that open to the fact that he's God and um, he doesn't operate the way that the created do in our human forms alone. And maybe we just have to be okay with the answers that we do have in scripture. And like you said, then we just create these guardrails that we operate within. Um, Even though we don't have the answer as clearly pinned down as we would like it to, we know, Hey, if you step outside of these guardrails, that is certainly not what scripture says.
1: Right. And it's also that we're grappling with like the most unprecedented event in human history in that God would take on human flesh and become incarnate and that he would die and raise again. And that by that, that death and life that we would have life in him. And so to like wrap your mind around like the, the cosmology of like what is going on mm-hmm. in the infinite mind of God and his ability to have ordained this from the past and to execute it. And like, what does that mean? You know, all those kinds of things. We're just trying to put some language based on the inferences of like the, the, the systems of the, scripture to kind of like say like okay like how can we speak about this way in a way that's like responsible and accurate while still leaving room for the mystery
0: yeah and that's what these councils were trying to do and essentially that's where it ended up i mean there's councils that came after uh these ones but they really just reaffirmed what was already decided within the councils that came previously and so that's where we ended up with the Um, apostles creed
1: yeah and so from there it kind of just started to circulate and became just a gold standard for um everybody as a kind of like the the measuring stick for orthodox belief uh little o not eastern orthodox but you know the right and true non-heretical belief and so um i just wanted to give a quick summary of like what these uh debates and arguments across pretty much a century 125 years uh have what they kind of created as the boundaries for sound Christian doctrine. So they established that we all affirm as Christians that God exists in three distinct persons who have the same essence and who are one God, that Jesus always existed alongside God the Father and is himself God, that when he came to earth, he took on human nature. He's one person with one will, but with two natures that are bound together, but nevertheless do not mingle with one another. He was born of the Virgin Mary and conceived by a miracle of the Holy Spirit. He was killed under Pontius Pilate. He rose on the third day. He ascended to heaven, and he will return to judge the living and the dead. And uh, for the church, this means that he will usher us into resurrection life and life everlasting. So over the course of about 125 years, this is what they arrived at, which if you look to Scripture, you know, that's that's the shape it's all of, there. of it's yeah. all there. It's just um, when you're looking at the New Testament, it, there's no Bible passage where like Paul breaks down like here's what the Trinity is, um, because I don't you know, that wasn't necessarily his concern to create systems of doctrine. It was his concern that I'm writing this letter to this church and this is the specific practical pastoral need that they have. And yes, there's some theological Uh, things that I'm saying that are in that, but ultimately, like all of these letters are occasional. They're not purely doctrinal. And so when we're thinking like, okay, what's the pure doctrinal boundary? We're pulling from all of the New Testament sources. What did Jesus say about himself? What did Paul say about Jesus? What did Peter say about Jesus? What did John say about Jesus? How do we pull all these things together and make sure that there's one harmonious image of how we're understanding the nature of who God is and what he does and the purpose of Jesus in the world?
0: Well, and that's just the way that systematic theology works in general. Is the Bible isn't um, broken off into elements of like, here's what we believe about uh, humanity, here's what we believe about God, here's what we believe about angels, here's what we believe about, about demons. But you can certainly purchase books that have those categories laid out, which are systematic theology books, uh, and Real all their ones usually. Huh? Real thick books. Yes, yes.
1: Good even bedtime the, material. Even the condensed, not feeling tired? Go ahead.
0: Yeah, even the condensed ones, you're like, wow, this is still hundreds and hundreds of pages. Um, but the way that we arrive at that is by looking at all of Scripture holistically and even those verses within the context, right? So you're not just plucking out like Googling angels, great, here's everything the Bible has to say about angels, but what is it actually revealing when it's talking about these angels? Because oftentimes when you're reading a section of scripture, that is not what the original intent of that author is, is to say, here, here's everything you should believe about the creation of the world, which oftentimes we go back to Genesis and we think, oh, great, this is the history of the world. This is the history of how the world came to be. But that's not actually the intent of the author. Genesis was never intentionally written to be this uh, history book or this scientific book on how we understand the world came to be. The literary device is far different for what the author was trying to convey to the audience.
1: Right, yeah. And even one thing that was controversial at the time when they were formulating these creeds was that they were using words that weren 't necessarily found in scripture, so they 're trying to summarize this idea that yes, Jesus is God, and God the Father is God, but there's one God, but there's two people and so even just like them using like this this Greek word homoousion, of the same essence, like there was a lot of fighting over like should we use that word because even we don't though find it's like it. it's yeah. it's summarizing the inferential information that we have in a way that's coherent and then from there when they they formulated the creed in in Greek then they had to translate it into Latin so then you're like even a couple more steps removed but you're kind of translating the 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 raw data of scripture into something that's comprehensible that we can understand and still remain inside the boundaries of what god has said and really when you look at the apostles creed and uh you know all of the the different um like challenges it experienced uh through the centuries, you can see that these folks did a really good job. I mean purely by virtue of the fact that this is a doctoral statement that has survived to this day um like as the standard for everybody, even though it was first drafted in the second century within uh fifty to a hundred years of when the apostles died um uh, but then was later refined and expanded and yet. Through all of that, through all of the history of the church, through all the times that Christians have literally killed each other and fought political battles and reformations and schisms and all this kind of stuff, we all still agree on it.
0: I mean, when you put it that way, it's pretty remarkable. Right. I mean, I think the second to scripture itself, right? Like what else has already stood the test of time? Um, and this is one of those one of those things that's within the, the tradition of the church, which I know as Protestants, we don't like to really lean on tradition in any way. <laughs> but in in some aspects specifically related to the Apostles' Creed, there are elements of tradition that are fundamental to how we understand our own faith.
1: Right. I mean, I was just thinking that same thing. Other than the New Testament canon, this is just about the only other thing that we agree on as a binding document. Right. And so why is this important? I mean, that's cool. We like church history. We like using old Greek words and things like that. But why Why is this important? I think for one, uh, it's encouraging in some ways that every weird theology that we hear about today was probably dealt with some time ago.
0: You mean there's nothing new under the sun?
1: That is true. There's nothing new <laughs> under the sun. There's no new heresy under the sun. If you think you got a good one, somebody's already beat you to it. Right. And there was a council on it at some point. And so as low church evangelicals, um, we tend to get a little bit cocky about like not needing tradition. And that kind of comes from the Protestant value of You know, the fact that church tradition or ecumenical councils, uh, they don't have the same authoritative weight as Scripture. Like every authority that we look to has to be um, placed under the authority of Scripture. And that is a huge value of the whole entire Protestant Reformation and for evangelicals as well. We're we're people of the Bible, but we often take it a step kind of too far. Uh, and we just kind of imagine that we don't need anybody from the church's past to help us, you know, form us or instruct us on what the Bible has authoritatively said. And so we just have this like this, I don't know, this mindset that we have to figure it out for ourselves every single generation. When in centuries past, people have been thinking about these very same things and they've been working through them and they've been fighting about them. And there's just a lot of stuff that is available to us um, that we that we just pretend doesn't exist. And then we try to fight these old battles that are new to us, but not new to the church.
0: Yeah. And we lose out on a lot of, a lot of critical elements of our own faith when we choose to do that. And I even think of just my own church tradition that I grew up in. And it took me going to uh, college and grad school to actually read anything from anyone that was older than the eighties Uh, And there's some really rich and deep thinking that was happening by theologians that came long before our current church traditions that we can glean from and learn from. And there's a lot of names like Recently, I shared a name with you and you laughed at me because you were like, you've never heard of this person before. Do you remember who it was?
1: No, I don't. You said
0: something like, you've heard of Charles Spurgeon, but you've never heard of this guy. And even honestly, Charles Spurgeon, I had never read him prior to, um, I think it was undergrad.
1: Oh, G.K. Chesterton.
0: G.K. Chesterton. I was like, oh, I'm reading this book on.
1: But this some guy named G.K. Guy- <laughs> Chesterton. <laughs>
0: And then you just I was like, like, that's the first
1: time you've heard that name?
0: Yeah, it really was yeah. because I had just never read anyone that wasn't a current author when it came to understanding scripture or when it came to matters of my faith. And I think a large part of that is because, like you said, we look down on tradition so much in a way thinking like, no, the only thing we need is scripture, which is absolutely true. But... There is still a place for tradition, and it's honestly quite foolish of us to discard anything that came before our current time.
1: Right, yeah. For us to take this mentality of, like, the only thing I need is the Scripture itself is actually not a value of the Protestant Reformation that that we think it is. They said, no, the Bible is the final authority, but... The traditions that we have inherited help us to apprehend that even though they are placed under the authority of Scripture, and Scripture is the final judge of those things. Um, But when we look at these old, like, creedal definitions, they actually help us to uh, determine, like, what is outside the Orthodox Christian faith. And, like, There's actually like current examples of we're like, yep, this, we already talked about this in the creeds and the councils before, for example, when we look at uh, the Church of Latter-day Saints, they actually support a kind of like tri-theism where the Father, the Son, the Holy Spirit are, uh, and this is, I'm quoting their own literature, a quote, three separate beings who have one purpose. So they're not one essence. They're not one God. And so way back from 325, we're like, yep, that's a little hinky. That's not, that's not it. Uh, same goes for Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, they believe that Jesus is a separate being from God the Father um, and that the Holy Spirit doesn't really exist as like a distinct person. Like when they refer to the Holy Spirit, it's really just another way to refer to God the Father when we see him work. They also have this thing about Jesus being the half-brother of Satan and so there's some other stuff in there that um, maybe like the church councils didn't specifically address, you know, all of those things. But like, there's enough there for them to be like, yeah, you like, strike one on this, strike two on that. This is not within the bounds.
0: Right. That's outside of the way that we have all agreed that strip, scripture has given us information on who Jesus is.
1: Right. Yeah. From like the Russian Orthodox to the Italian Roman Catholic to the Southern Baptist. Like we're all like, nope, for 2000 years, we have that's been outside the bounds for us. Uh, And there's also some like uh, I want to call them evangelical, but they're evangelical adjacent circles that hold to what's been called modalism. And I think for some of them, it's just a sloppiness of language. But there is a serious error uh, for a lot of them where they don't see God as a distinct three persons. Uh, But as one person who operates in modes, so right now he's the mode of the Father. Right now he's the mode of the Son. Right now he's the mode of the Holy Spirit, which makes Jesus' whole conversation with the Father in Gethsemane seem super weird. Right. He's like talking to himself.
0: And isn't that similar to the ice analogy or the water?
1: Yes, that's where that analogy breaks down. Yeah,
0: you can have water, you can have steam, and you can have ice, but But they're they're all all H2O. That's modalism. That's modalism because you can never have something be ice water and steam at the same time. They always have to like transform into those various forms. Yeah.
1: Right. And so like all of these theologies, they take us to weird places um, and they actually end up denying who God is, who Jesus is and how we find salvation in him. And so in the truest sense, I know this phrase gets thrown around way too much These are false teachings, right? Like everybody's like, oh, I didn't like so-and-so's shoes or I don't like what so-and-so has to say about women in leadership. They're a false teacher, uh, even though they're within the bounds of orthodox Christianity. Um, This is actually false teaching. This is what false teaching is. Yeah,
0: and I think part of the issue of why we throw that around so much is because we don't actually know what the bounds are. We were because we discard tradition so much that we don't realize, hey, there there is something within our history that has given us parameters and guardrails to operate within that we're now setting up our own definitions and our own parameters and guardrails. And that's why when we see a woman, you know, a clip of a woman teaching, we instantly call her a false teacher, even though we know we can't actually say why. Other than well, she's a woman, so duh, of course she's a false teacher. Uh, but we we can't even like point it back to this is what is being taught, and this is the the true north of what needs to be taught. Uh, we just don't even have parameters; we just are creating them. Will the parameters a whim.
1: end up being like what is my particular uh, church tradition? Yeah, we are creating our own parameters. Yeah, right? which are way narrower than the actual parameters, and so. Um and it's fine to have those distinctions. Like you can believe, like I can believe this is right and that this other person on this other tradition is wrong, and I can believe it strongly without saying that they're a false teacher because they're within the historic Christian faith still. And so this also isn't to say that like the creed is infallible, right? It's not because you know we're good Protestants, we're good evangelicals, it is placed below the authority of Scripture. Um but if you're gonna say something that deviates from the Apostles' Creed, um, you're, like, standing against literally thousands of years of agreement between the best and brightest of the Christian tradition, even across schisms and reformations that have reaffirmed these things over and over and over again. So, like, maybe you are right and you are literally the first person in 2,000 years to properly interpret the Bible. But I'm going to go on a whim here and say probably not because, you, I mean, you have to, like, that. that's a tough— Wrote a hoe like you yeah. really got to do some convincing if you're going to overthrow two thousand years of tradition, which has been based on the authority of scripture. Like that's you know you got to really make a strong case. You can't just throw it around.
0: Yeah, and you really need to support your case in in a lot of different angles, right? Like education-wise, like you really need to have spent years and years and years, probably grappling with something, probably your whole lifetime to finally arrive to that. Um, I don't imagine like a college student in undergrad is arriving at such a—I can't think of the
1: word—such a crazy, like
0: oh, like a a crazy epiphany that no one else has caught on for centuries of the Christian faith.
1: Yeah, it's probably not going to happen. And even when I uh, hear about like a certain doctrine or a certain viewpoint that um is interesting to me. Um, but I'm not convinced of, but I think it's compelling just based on how someone's interpreting scripture. One of the first things I do is I'll research who in the Christian tradition has believed this. Is there historical precedent that there's a group, even though it was a minority at some point or not, is there historical precedent that in the historic Christian faith that this was an acceptable interpretation of this particular text at any given point? Now, that's not the final authority, but like that, that means something that like that's, that's part of like uh, weighing and sifting things and, and trying to discern like what is helpful theology or right theology or wrong theology. And so I think uh, something like the creed is, is kind of a a focal point of that. Uh, For a second thing, I think uh, why this is important is that we can actually look across the aisle to different Christian traditions like, whether it's another Protestant tradition or the Roman Catholics or the Eastern Orthodox, and for as deep as our disagreements with them might be, we can actually say to those people, like, yes, you worship the same God that we worship. You believe in the same Jesus that I believe in. And so we can, like, have charity towards one another. Like, we don't have to... Um, now we can have like really strong disagree like there are some theological hills when I'm talking to an Eastern Orthodox or a Roman Catholic or even someone in a different Protestant stream of the mind like I'm going to die on those theological hills usually um hopefully not literally um but I can still say like yes you're uh I'll see you in heaven and we'll see who is right uh to that person on the other side of that tradition so long as they're within the orthodox parameters
0: Yeah and we often don't like to open up our camps that much Right. We want to say, no, this is the only one that makes sense, even though from a very broad perspective, like these are first tier issues. And that's something I always try and keep in mind as someone sharing something with me is, are you sharing a first tier issue or is that secondary or even tertiary at this point? The first tier issues are like, this is what makes you a Christian. Right. Uh, Do we agree on this? Okay, then we have a foundation to work from, and maybe we disagree on these other points, but at least as a first, a first tier issue, we are of the same kind.
1: Right? Yeah, and so it just creates those parameters and expectations, and the fact that we have something that, like, we have something that was ironed out together uh, that we agree on. Um. And we can recite together. Isn't that crazy? That, like someone was like the black, like Orthodox hat and then like a the Pope and then like me in a t-shirt. Like we could all recite these things together and be in full agreement on yeah.
0: it. Yeah. I mean, that's pretty neat. That's pretty cool. Oftentimes we don't see how we come together across the aisle. Right. And this is one of those things that we can stand together on. And that's, it's nice to have those moments, right?
1: Yeah. It's pretty cool.
0: at lifeaudio.com.